Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 88, Lady of the Lake. This episode is a look behind the curtain of the royal narrative, as we explore the life of a great queen, and her time in one of Egypt's most idyllic country estates. Today, we are visiting the royal harem of the Fayum. Today's episode is brought to you by Leil Rui and Daniel Greenwood. Thank you folks for your support of the show. May Taweret, goddess of the family, protect you and yours, and guard your home. Today's tale takes place between about 1450 and 1410 BCE. This is the story of a single woman and her life in one of Egypt's most mysterious institutions. From her youthful days as a royal wife, to her prominence as a great queen of Egypt, this woman enjoyed a life of luxury, but also one of competition and anxiety. That she triumphed is a testament to her character and determination. Today, we get to do her honour. Our subject today is the great lady Tia. Tia, whose name literally means the great, was queen of Egypt from 1418 to 1411 BCE. Before that, she was the royal wife of Amunhotep II. Then, she was the royal mother of Thutmose IV. Her life spanned two great reigns. The days of her activity and her influence are fascinating. We have met Tia before, as she raised her son Thutmose to power, and then governed alongside him in the first half of his reign. Tia was a notable lady, whose inscriptions survive at Karnak, at Giza, and many other locations in Egypt. Today though, we're going to take a closer look at this woman, and see the environment which created her. This is a fascinating little story. I hope you enjoy. Imagine you are on a small sailboat, sailing northward on the Nile. You are heading towards Memphis, towards the capital, where the great power of the pharaoh resides. But before you reach that city, you soon find the river diverging into two. A canal, split off from the main waterway, takes you north and west. Is it natural? Is it man-made? Different sources say different things. All you know is that the water is quiet here. It flows gently, winding away from the great river of Harpy. Papyrus reeds are thicker, villages more densely populated, the farmland is more fertile. This is an area of greenery surpassed only by the delta far to the north. Here, in the lake country, life seems positively idyllic. Welcome to the Fayum, known to the Egyptians as Shei Resi, or the southern lake. It is a beautiful and peaceful place, it is relaxing. It is also where the kings of the mid-18th dynasty had their harem palace. As you carry on down the Nile, the lake of the Fayum is ahead. But before you go to that lake, you are distracted by the sight of high walls rising above the fertile plains. A grand building begins to tower overhead, and soon you come into its shadow and see the telltale signs of hustle and bustle. Porters carry goods to and fro from docks, artisans and craftsmen prepare valuable objects, servants take food from storerooms and kitchens into a hidden, secluded sanctuary. Guards protect the doorways and patrol the grounds. Security is high. What is this place? 
You have come to a building called Merwer, which translates as the Great Canal. This is a palace of sorts, although it is not your conventional royal palace, which was part house, part government office. This palace is a bit more domestic, and a bit more secluded. It's more like a country estate, a place for royalty to get away from it all. You have arrived at the grand palace of the royal apartments, aka the harem of the pharaoh. Come inside, look around. In the early years of her life, Queen Tia lived at this harem in the Fayum Oasis. Here, she spent her days among other royal women, royal children, and the various servants who cared for the royal family. Here, she enjoyed a secluded and quiet life. But what was here like? What went on in the royal harem? Living at the harem palace must have been interesting. The wives and children had a comfortable environment, living in ornate apartments. They played music, games, enjoyed fine foods, and had their physical needs attended to by trusted servants. Their apartments were large, with high ceilings to encourage airflow. Around the buildings, acacia trees gave shade and gardens provided fruits and flowers for their enjoyment. Watching over all of this, guards and servants and managers ensured that the royal family were maintained in luxury and style. It was, in the physical sense, a comfortable life. Now we don't have any artistic records of the Fayum Palace, but we do have some from contemporary or near-contemporary institutions. From that, we can say that, as a general idea, Egyptian palaces of the mid-18th dynasty were richly decorated, spacious, and comfortable. On the walls, geometric patterns and flower imagery brightened up the surroundings. The floors and ceilings were decorated with scenes of wildlife, birds, waterways, and plants, and there were blue backgrounds to simulate the sky. Rooms were made to appear like small oases in the midst of society's chaos. They were secluded and peaceful. The decoration was meant to relax. Palaces were well maintained, of course. Floors were swept regularly, ceilings were high, small windows and courtyards let air and light into the complex. Pools of water gave a quiet luxury to surroundings. It was peaceful and idyllic. At least, it was when everyone was quiet. As you can imagine, with so many people, adults and children in one space, things could occasionally get quite noisy. But hey, that's what the royal tutors and nurses were for. Get the kids away, either out to the roof or out to the gardens, for some quality education, and to give their parents some peace. For the royal wives, apartments offered sanctuary, courtyards and terraces offered a place to socialise. The palace was, at the best of times, a quiet and restful place, a resort away from the royal court. But that's just what we see on the surface. Behind the scenes, there was a lot more going on. Not all of it was pleasant, but all of it was fascinating. A palace does not function independently. Quite the opposite, in fact. Resorts require huge quantities of goods and staff to maintain. So how did the harem function? More importantly, what was life like for those who worked there? Well, we know a little bit about how the harem of the Fayum worked and produced its own accessories. What we know tells us that the royal family enjoyed peace, quiet, and comfort. The workers? Hmm, not so much. 
Excavations at Merwer reveal that the Harem Palace was divided into two main sections. In one, the royal family enjoyed their life. In the other, workers and servants laboured to supply the institution with a thousand and one different needs. This work was difficult, it was cramped, and it was tiring. In the back of the palace, on the north end of the complex, a whole range of storerooms and granaries held supplies for things like food and drink. Bread, vegetables, meats came to the palace in large quantities daily. Also, jars of wine sent from the royal estates up in the delta. Porters carried bundles of food or hauled vats of wine up from the river boats to the storerooms. These were then tallied by scribes, and they were taken to the kitchens or to the granaries. This was exhausting work, probably done multiple times a day, to keep the many wives, children, tutors, nurses, and servants supplied with all of their needs. But that was only part of the process. At the rear of Merwer, there was also a series of small factories. By this I mean production facilities, dedicated to making different goods. What kind of goods? Well, we're not sure yet. Archaeologists at the site of Merwer have uncovered numerous terracotta kilns. Now these could have been dedicated either to pottery, or to metalworking, or perhaps even to glassmaking. There is no certainty just yet, but it'll be one or several of those functions. I quite like the idea of the palace making its own glass. Egyptian glass production had begun in earnest during the reign of Amunhotep II, so there is a good chance that Queen Tia and those around her were enjoying some sparkling, shiny accessories in their day-to-day. I have no proof of this just yet, but it's a cool idea nonetheless. Anyway, these factories were smelly, unpleasant, but they were the necessary aspect of palace life. In these production areas, craftsmen and artisans laboured, day in and day out, to produce the luxury wares privileged by the wives and children of Pharaoh. Smelting metal, fashioning pots, blowing glass. It was laborious work, which probably left many craftsmen bent of back, tired of limb, and aching of joint. Not an easy life by any means. But hey, this is the other side of a service-based society. For every glittering cup filled with wine, there is a raft of punishing jobs to be done beforehand. The other invisible aspect of life in this palace would have been the social hierarchy. We don't hear about it too much, but there must have been a system of rank and status among the various workers of the palace. The hairdressers and personal attendants, servants of the body, must have privileged their positions highly. Porters and manufacturers, by contrast, were probably seen only in the storerooms or the squalid factory quarter. With so many different needs being served at once, and with people of such privilege making the demands, we can safely assume that the servants of the palace considered themselves far superior to those who worked in the back. A body attendant, after all, has an altogether different type of work than a man operating a copper furnace. So although we don't hear about it in the sources, we can guess that even beyond the royalty, the harem palace was laced with hierarchies and relationships. One group held themselves above and apart from others. As far as work environments go, it sounds demoralizing to me. On the other hand, the Egyptians may have looked at this kind of relationship with different eyes. 
we should remember that this was the place where many future kings were born. In other words, it was a domain where Horus, the great lord of the earth and protector of the cosmos, came into the world. For every irritating demand given to a servant, there was, in the big picture, a trade-off. It's not hard to imagine that a faithful Egyptian might have seen this in a more positive sense. Workers at the harem were contributing meaningfully to the care and upbringing of the gods themselves. Not only was that a hugely prestigious part to play in the world, but it was also great for one's prospects in the afterlife. An Egyptian who did good by their society could expect a positive reception in the kingdom of Osiris. Well, what could be a greater good than helping to preserve the very fabric of the cosmos? Every king needed care in their childhood. I wouldn't be surprised if the harem's workers viewed their job, difficult though it may have been, as one with a great deal of meaning and value. And that, I think, is at least something to consider. So, the institution of the harem is complex and mysterious. It's a mix of privileged and poor, of idle and hard-working. The harem absorbed the products of others' labour, but in return it slowly shaped the next generation of Egyptian leadership. Was this a fair trade? Well, I think only the ancients can decide that. For us, it's more complicated. As much as I would like to explore the depths of the harem in excruciating detail, there is, quite simply, a lot that we do not know. What was the pay like? Were the hours generous? How were workers treated by their superiors? A lot is missing, and I don't want to give the place the wrong impression. As much as we can guess at the comfort levels of the apartments and the work facilities, there is still a lot missing in the record. Further archaeological exploration is ongoing, at least has been for the past decade or so. So hopefully in the next few years, we'll have a much better picture of life in the Fayum Palace. For now, we still have to be tentative with our conclusions. Fortunately, there is still plenty to say about the palace's main inhabitant, the great lady Tia. Tia spent her youthful days in this harem. In time, she cared for her infant son, Tutmos. She watched him grow, organised his education, and then, when the time came, helped him to rise to the mighty throne of the land. Once that happened, Tia herself left the Fayum, and headed for the royal palace at Memphis. We're going to leave Tia for the moment. I have already recounted her exploits as Queen of the Nile, so in chapter 2, let's get to meet some of the individuals who lived around the Queen in the region of the Fayum Oasis. After the break, it's time to meet the locals. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. 
and we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you leave the Harem Palace and return to your little riverboat, you have an opportunity to sail up towards the Lake of the Fayum itself. To the west and north of the Harem, the lake and the towns around it are awaiting your visit. Sail on, there are some people there I'd like you to meet. Your boat carries on, the wind gently pushing it northward. You steer with the current, heading downstream. Up ahead, the lake is waiting. The waterways are calm and quiet, but do not be fooled, there is danger in this water. This area is home to many crocodiles, who lurk on the riverbank and beneath the surface, waiting for unsuspecting victims. The crocodiles are massive, and more than one local has been snatched away unexpectedly. Unsurprisingly, residents here have made a habit of seeking protection from the menace of their prehistoric neighbours. A religious cult to the crocodile god Sobek grew up in the Fayum long, long ago. By the time our story unfolds, the region of the Fayum, the Sheiresi, was alternately known as the Southern Lake of Sobek. This is Sobek's land. If you live here, you worship him. As you enter Sobek's lake, a small town rises up to your right. This is the town of Shedit, aka Crocodileopolis. It is the municipal centre of the region, and it is the home of the crown's representatives. It is Shedit which provides the Harem Palace with most of its food and drink. It is Shedit that rules the Fayum. In the time of Queen Tia, the town of Shedit was governed by a mayor named Sobek Hotep. Sobek Hotep, or Sobek is Satisfied, was a prominent member of the court in his day, and he's worth a quick introduction. Sobek Hotep was presumably a native of the Fayum, that at least is what his name suggests. So he probably grew up among the waterways, near the lake, in one of the more fertile areas of the country. He also grew up within the harem itself. He was a member of the Heredu en Kap, or Children of the Nursery. The children of the nursery were a special group within the elite who were raised at the royal apartments, given tutoring and nursing alongside the future pharaohs. So from an early age, a man like Sobek Hotep was close to the centre of royal power. In adulthood, he used this familiarity to his advantage. Sobek Hotep rose to the position of Khatia She Resit, or Mayor of the Southern Lake. In other words, the Mayor of the Fayum region. He was the king's official representative here, responsible for collecting the taxes, supplying the temple of Sobek with provisions, and ensuring that the needs of the harem palace were met. It was probably a job full of accounting, mundane organisation, and overseeing work projects. It wasn't glamorous, but at least out in the Fayum, he could enjoy a measure of comfort and independence. Sure, he was far away from the royal palace in Memphis, but a cushy job is a cushy job, right? I'm sure he wasn't too unhappy in his work. Sobek Hotep probably became the mayor on account of his connections with the royal harem, but he also played the political game well, and he strengthened his credentials by marrying the daughter of a previous mayor. Merit, daughter of Kapu, 
became Sobek Hotep's wife, and mother of their son, who himself later became a mayor. So the family was well connected, part of the provincial aristocracy, and they are a good symbol of how the Egyptian nobles monopolised the government positions throughout history. Now, despite their <clears throat> less than meritocratic rise, Sobek Hotep and Merit made a good team. They were close with Tutmos IV and with Queen Tia. Close enough that when the time came, the pharaoh entrusted them with important roles at the harem itself. Sobek Hotep and Merit became tutors or nurses to two royal children. These were prestigious jobs which gave them connections to the next generation, and showed how trustworthy they were as members of the court. For this husband-wife power combo, looking after princes and princesses must have seemed like a great honour, and a great opportunity. Pharaoh Tutmose IV had many children. Sobek Hotep and Merit looked after two of them. Merit took on the king's eldest daughter, a princess who was named Tia in honour of her grandmother. Sobek Hotep took on a prince named Amun Hotep. It is extremely likely that this was the prince who later became Amun Hotep III, pharaoh of Egypt. If this is the case, then Sobek Hotep had a close bond with the future Horus incarnate. Another example of how working at the harem, whatever it involved, put Egyptians in contact and connection with a living god. So yeah, Sobek Hotep and his wife were in a very good position. Although we know plenty about this couple in a political and cultural sense, what they contributed to their local environment, we're not entirely certain of their connections to the royal family. We know that Sobek Hotep and Merit looked after the grandchildren of Queen Tia, the children of Tutmose IV, but beyond this professional responsibility, what kind of personal connection did this couple from the Fayum have to the great king and to his mother? Simply put, we don't have enough evidence to prove any sort of strong personal connection. That being said, there are a couple of very good reasons to suspect that Merit and Sobek Hotep knew Queen Tia personally. For one thing, the aristocracy of Egypt was tiny, maybe a couple of hundred people spread throughout the land. Within the Fayum region, there was probably only a dozen people who really qualified for a close connection with the king and his mother. Queen Tia had spent a lot of her time in the Fayum during her early days, so it's more than likely she had a passing professional acquaintance, or even personal friendship with Merit and with Sobek Hotep. It's entirely possible that Queen Tia was responsible in some way for Sobek Hotep and Merit rising to the position they did. At the very least, their passing acquaintance or social connection must have helped them speak into the right ears in order to ensure that their career advanced the way it did. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Queen Mother Tia was probably personally familiar with Sobek Hotep and Merit. They were moving in too small a circle, and in too small a geographic area, not to have become quite familiar with one another over time. So Merit and Sobek Hotep were probably quite close, either professionally or personally, with the Queen Mother Tia. Maybe they didn't know the pharaoh so well, but they definitely had that connection with the great lady. 
We're going to return to this couple and the royal children that they cared for in a later episode. For now, let's get back to the great Queen Tia. It has been a few years since she left the Fayum. What has she been up to? In 1412 BCE, Queen Tia was approaching the end of her days. Living in the royal palace of Memphis, the Queen Mother oversaw affairs at the court and helped to guide her son in the exercise of power. Back in the Fayum, her grandchildren were being cared for at the harem, the palace called Merwer. Tutors like Tia's old friend Merit and her husband Sobek Hotep looked after and educated those grandchildren. The Fayum took care of itself. We're not sure when or if Tia ever returned to the lake country of her youth. There is no surviving record on this. All we have to go on is a single statue discovered in the region that depicted the queen. This statue gives us a small clue to her profile here, and how the queen mother's days living at the harem might have been represented. The statue is broken now, and only shows the queen's bottom half but it was apparently a well-crafted piece of work, high-quality art of the royal workshops. The fact that it shows the queen by herself, rather than alongside her son, suggests maybe that it was a personal donation. More importantly, it reveals her connection with the Fayum, even after she left the oasis for the royal court. Tia dedicated her statue to the great god Sobek, and the piece was actually found in the town of Shadit, aka Crocodilopolis. This is where the great temple of Sobek was located, and it's where Mayor Sobek Hotep resided. Did the Queen Mother send this statue to the Mayor, or did she communicate with him about her donation? It's possible, and it would make sense. It seems that Tia did keep some connection with the Fayum, even after she left. Maybe this was a personal connection, or a political one, or merely an act of devotion to the great god. Either way, it shows that Tia was not one to forget her origins. Even when her star ascended, she gave respect to where she came from. That's all we have to go on for Tia at the Fayum itself. Not much, is it? It's 50-50 whether she ever returned there, or whether she lived the rest of her life at the Palace of Memphis. Realistically, with work to be done at the court, and her son residing at Memphis and occasionally at Thebes, Tia might not have had much reason to return to the lake country. Well, maybe she would visit her grandchildren, that's assuming that she was attentive in this regard. But, simply put, we have no record of this, so we have to assume that the Queen quite possibly stayed in Memphis for the rest of her life. Years passed, and Tia watched as her son, the pharaoh Tutmos IV, raised his profile, performed the duties of a king, and achieved great things in diplomacy and politics. How much the Queen Mother got involved in these affairs, we do not know. What we do know is the legacy she left behind. Tia died somewhere around 1411 BCE. It's not certain when, only that the written and artistic records dry up around Regnal Year 7 of Tutmos IV. Subsequently, the role of great royal wife fell to the king's sister, Iaret. Put those two facts together, and it's as good a guess as any that Tiar passed away sometime around Regnal Year 6 or 7. 
she was an unknown age and had been supreme queen of Egypt for about six years. In her short time in power, Tia established an enduring name for herself. Although as queen she was very quickly eclipsed by more noteworthy names over the next few generations, Tia was still an important figure, and her legacy did survive for some time. In an administrative record from the 20th dynasty, about 300 years after her death, the Temple of Amun in Karnak was the landholder of many acres in the Fayum. Among this acreage was an estate called the Estate of Tia, King's Mother. So it seems that the Queen had been a bit of a landowner in life. Then, over the centuries, her estates endured in her name. Eventually, they became part of Amun's dominion. I wonder where the farm was. Perhaps it is still there, unknown today. And so it was that Queen Tia died in the middle of her son's reign. But death was not the end of her story. King Tutmos buried his mother with due ceremony in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Although we call it the Valley of Kings, this is a misnomer. Plenty of royal women, children, and miscellaneous nobles are buried in this area. Queen Tia was one more great lady to be interred among the sacred hills. The tomb of Tia was a modest sepulchre, just one chamber at the bottom of a long, sloping corridor. It was never finished, so it must have been started quite late in her life. Perhaps after Tutmos IV became pharaoh, he commissioned this tomb for his mother. Had she lived longer, it might have been in a much nicer state when she died. As it was, it was small, but at the very least, it was complete. The mummy of Tia is lost, or at least unidentified. But when archaeologists excavated the tomb properly, they did find some of her burial goods. There was a lovely Shabti figurine, a small terracotta worker meant to serve her in the afterlife. It was covered in hieroglyphs, including the name Tia. It was actually this object that allowed archaeologists to say that this tomb belonged to the Queen Mother. It's cool when that happens. An anonymous tomb gets re-examined, and little pieces emerge to prove the story. There was also a lovely set of canopic jars. Only fragments of these survive today, but we can say that they were made of alabaster, painted a very bright blue. Now blue is an interesting colour, which starts to show up more and more in this historical period. It seems that the Egyptian royalty had developed quite a taste for bright blue patterns on their pottery, their wall paintings, and in their accessories. Kind of a fashion, if you will. Over the next 50 years or so, this kind of blue is going to be the defining colour of the royal fashionistas. It first shows up with Tia. Keep it in your mind. Tia went to her grave in some style, as befits an elder lady of the royal house. I wonder if her funeral was attended by her old colleagues from the Fayum. It's not hard to imagine Merit or Sobek Hotep in the funeral procession, royal children trailing behind them. Since this couple were politically powerful in the region where Tia had lived during her youth, and since they looked after two of her grandchildren, I like to think that they gave their professional or personal respects to the great lady who had probably helped raise their profile. So Tia went to the afterlife. Her soul passed into the west, and after many days of travel, she arrived in the kingdom of Osiris. 
She remains there today, but her name lives on. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.